Hey, this is Jeremy from the Reasonable Doubts podcast. The Doubtcasters are still on break, busy making improvements to the show and preparing for an excellent fall lineup that we're going to bring to you guys. As of right now, we're hoping to release our next episode, episode 20, in about two weeks. We're shooting for the 25th of August. Hopefully we'll be able to make it. In the meantime, though, I wanted to share something with our listeners from another podcast. This podcast is called the Reason Driven Podcast, and it is put on by two gentlemen, Danny Shade and his friend Mikhail. So for this bonus episode of Reasonable Doubts, I'm going to play a portion of their interview with yours truly when I visited their show a couple months ago. I joined them on the show to help them respond to the claims made by Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. The episode prior to the one that I was on was called Episode 28, Jerusalem Wasn't Built in a Day. You can check it out on their podcast blog, reasondriven.blogspot.com, or of course you can find their podcast on iTunes. Just search in the podcast directory for the Reason Driven Podcast. But on Episode 28, Danny and Mikhail interviewed the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. If you don't know Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias is the president of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He's a very popular Christian apologist and a master of rhetoric. And Danny and Mikhail learned this the hard way as Ravi gave them a very, very frustrating... Well, I guess ass-kicking isn't too hard of a way to put it. And in fact, I don't think either of them would mind me putting it that way. So I had the honor of being on their show the very next week for their episode, Response to Ravi. So right now, I'm only going to air the interview portion that they did with me on their show. However, I would encourage you to go to their website, again, reasondriven.blogspot.com, and check out the entire episode. If you can stand to listen to a Christian apologist condescend to and manipulate two well-intentioned young men, I would also encourage you to listen to the episode prior episode 28, where they interview Ravi Zacharias. The two episodes together, I think, form a very good and enlightening typecase as to how Christian apologists can use rhetoric to outmaneuver their opponents, even when, logically, their arguments might be lacking. One little note I should probably insert here is that I do make a mistake at one point during uh, my interview with the boys. I mistakenly refer to something Ravi Zacharias is doing as a post-hoc hypothesis when what I meant to say was an ad hoc hypothesis. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. And I do a rather distasteful impression of Ravi Zacharias that I'm not all that proud of, but nevertheless um, decided to air the interview just as they edited it and not try to make myself look good. So um, if you want to see the comments in regards to this episode, uh, you can Go to their blog, again, reasondriven.blogspot.com, and you can see uh, the many comments posted there. And if you have any feedback you'd like to send to me personally about the interview, please be sure to send those to doubtcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and Reasonable Doubts will be back at the end of August.
Welcome to the Reason Driven Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Danny Shade, and joining me is Mikhail Lockwood. Hello. And in studio, in my living room, we have two amazing guests, and it is Jeremy Bien. And he's the host of the Reasonable Doubts Podcast, and also joining us is his lawyer, AJ Korstra. How you doing, guys? I'm doing good. Hey. Well, thanks so much for um, coming on our show. One of the reasons why we had you on here, well, one of them is because, well, you guys are in town. Yeah. So yeah. We're, so uh, we're out here doing some hiking in the beautiful uh, Colorado area, and I hope you guys know how lucky you are to be out here and to have these awesome mountains I in which do, to play around. I do, and yet don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. AJ was asking me, uh, how is it that people play Xbox in Colorado? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Three. It's one of those things when you live in... You know, Orlando, you never yeah. go to Disney hey, World. Four oh, okay, words, okay. okay. Call of Duty uh, 4. Oh, that is an awfully good game. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> I can well, see it. <laughs> the second reason why I was so excited to have Jeremy and AJ on was because we a little bit got our asses hand to it, handed to us last week with uh, Robbie Zacharias, and we've got a ton of feedback about all the shit we did wrong. Yeah, really, and, we just kind of laid down and we're unprepared, but... <laughs> In my defense, I kind of knew that I was going to get a little bit of an, a raping. So. <laughs> right, right. Was, hey, you know what? You know what? When I was listening to it, yeah, I was cringing like a lot of your listeners probably were too. But at the same time, I thought it was incredible that you guys actually went out and directly talked to somebody on the other side instead of just talking about their views, had a real conversation yeah. with them. And, you know, you guys were respectful and honest the whole way through. And, uh-huh. and you know, no matter how it went from there... I think you guys have every right to be proud of how you did. I, you know, well, just need you. to learn from it, maybe, yeah. and get better. But Well, in the way I kind of figured it, especially going into it and seeing how the, it was going, I didn't want to, first off, be very... Um, I didn't want to be animo- you know, have any animosity. I didn't want to be just, like, trying to get a, have a gotcha moment and, and just call him out on all these different things. I actually saw that it might be just more useful, especially the way that he was dancing around so many things. It mm-hmm. was very difficult to try and pick it. Like particulars. Yeah, there was a few times when Mikhail had to shush me because I was leaping out of my chair like I was going to say something. <laughs> yeah, the, and the, and he he was right to do it because we were already on a rabbit trail, which would have just put us on some sort of fifth degree rabbit trail. Oh, he's mm-hmm. the master of the red herring, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he, can, he can get off topic uh, like that, and uh, before you even realize it. And so what I was actually trying to focus on, and, and said during the conversation, was try to just focus on the argument and try to say, okay. What do I need for him to say? What am I trying to, like, what, what do we need to hear from him so that we really get his portrayal of his perspective? I was trying to just give him an opportunity then to just explain what he's going to say. Not even, I mean, there, of course, are always Well, holes, he certainly but. succeeded at that. <laughs> yeah, so he said a lot, and so I figured, okay, well, we're, our best we can do then is just give him a chance to give his argument and then go back and say, okay, this is the problem. Mm-hmm. So Right. I want to read a, one of the comments on the board. I'll read a few of these just email um, responses we got. Um, Martime Pole or Pole said, "I wasn't very impressed with the interview. I know that you guys wanted to be respectful, but I don't. But I think you let way too many assertions go unchallenged. The part of the interview about the USA being the only country based on equal rights was absolutely horrible. If Americans really believe that you are so exceptional, then I'm not surprised why you think you have the right to intervene in any country's internal affairs. Oh. Just consider a few atheistic countries. Whoa, that whoa, enjoy- whoa, 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 we, we, <laughs> Amer- <Yeah>. not all. <laughs> yeah, yeah." <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry to cut I didn't write it. I'n't no, sorry to cut it. No, it's okay. Just consider a few atheistic countries 
that enjoy a higher standard of living than the U.S. and have fewer social problems. Japan, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and many, many more. Hey, well, just because you believe in, in you know, free, like justice or, 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 or freedom of liberty and all that doesn't mean you're not free to be stupid, too. You know, that's something we are proud of in this country. Yeah. Hey, as soon as Norway fixes their immigration policies that I can move over there, <laughs> I'll be happy. But I, I do like it here yeah. in the United States. I don't remember you guys ever claiming that the United States was the best. No, I'm country. pretty sure that I that, think was... that was more of Ravi's thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it could be. Well, and then um, Marta May makes a good point about one of his fallacies. He, she, uh, she says, the whole argument of that guy can be summarized as argumentum ad consequentum. How do you say that? Consequentum. Consequentum. I.e., appeal to the consequences. That you know, I'm comfortable with that word. <laughs> I don't speak like French or whatever. Basically, all he said in that 40-minute diatribe is that God and Jeebus must exist <laughs> because otherwise we could not condemn Hitler, Stalin, etc. This is one of the most basic logical fallacies, and I really feel you guys should have been able to spot it right away. We did. I just didn't say anything because I was trying to... Get through you're last, a coward. No, the last freaking three things that he said, I was trying to compute. Yeah, oh. I'm surprised you were able to respond to some of the stuff. Yeah. I was listening to him talk, and I, I needed to pause the the iPod to figure out what exactly he was saying with his uh, yeah with uh, in with the stories. And mm -hmm. my goodness, I think you did a good, good job considering. That. I think that I think that needs to be considered. Is that yeah. AJ and I listened to this, and we paused it, and we started pointing out the logical fallacies. But it's different being in real time, mm. having a conversation with somebody. Right. Um, you know, the right thing to say doesn't always pop into your head at yeah. the, right at the right moment. If anything um, about my romantic life reveals that truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially to somebody who's as skilled at rhetoric as Ravi Zacharias. Oh, he's good. Dude. I mean, I think his logic is full of holes. And, but his rhetoric is top-notch. He's... Mm awesome oh yeah at what he does okay here's this next email this is by art hamline hamline hey guys i just got done with your last podcast blah 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 i don't know who this ravi guy is or what he does but i guess i'm taking issue with you guys for not reeling him in all he tried to do as i see it was drag you into gray areas and make you try to wade your way out of the bullshit well and good i suppose this is how many theists will debate but I nearly drove off the road when he blathered on about Dawkins and some guy from Princeton. How is it that you guys let him off the hook with the business about mongoloid children? Who is this professor exactly and what did he say? What is Ravi's evidence of any of this? Mongoloid children are no more than pigs? Oh, okay. I can say something to that. Or yeah. Are you, or are you ready to do that? Well, well, that was an interesting thing. I that That did leave me speechless in my head, but... By the time he said that and went on to something else, he then he turned around and phrased a question to me. Yeah. No, no, th this is a total, total straw man argument. Are either of you guys familiar with Peter Singer? No. Okay. Peter Singer is a philosopher. I don't know where they say Princeton. I, I know he's from Australia originally. I can't remember where he teaches. But he does not believe that, as Ravi Zacharias said, that a Down syndrome child is worse than a pig. Um, Peter Singer has a very sophisticated argument. It's based on utilitarian philosophy where he's trying to demonstrate the fact that um, we could not do medical experiments on animals morally without breaking some of the, uh, some of the standards that we use um, when we judge human conduct. Um, let, me, let me say that a little more clear. 
Peter Singer's argument would go something like this. Most people would oppose doing experiments, medical experiments, on a human being as opposed to an animal because they would say that a human being has intelligence and therefore is uh, somehow better than an animal. But Peter Singer's point is that in suffering, uh, animals and people are equal. So what he does to try to show this very clever, clever argument is that he'll say, well, let's look at some human beings that might have the same intellectual status as some animals would. Uh, and so if you were to take a severely handicapped child who mentally was at the same place as, as an animal, would you therefore say that it was okay to torture and do experiments on them? So to twist that into saying that a pig is better in his mind than a child is a very, very disgusting example of a straw man argument. And, uh, and that kind of argument works when you're talking to someone like us who just happen to not know anything about that. Right. If you don't know Peter Singer and you're not familiar with his arguments, they're detailed, they're sophisticated. The summary that I gave is, is woefully inadequate. Um, but, again, Ravi will oversimplify uh, to get the conclusions that he wants. Yeah. Well, thanks, Art. Uh, you wrote some other good stuff. Dawkins eating placenta? What is this supposed to mean? What does this have to do with anything? And I, I appreciate your frustration. And all I got to say is, you know what? We're going to work on it. And we might have him back again. And this time, we'll be prepared. Mikhail, you got one to read? Yeah. Um, we got someone anonymous here. And, um, well, again, they all are kind of agreeing um, with everything. But, I mean, everybody is, like, talking about the issue of naturalism and of how... Uh, it's the whole question of like morality, okay? If a basis for morality can't be based in a naturalistic worldview, and, and well, one person commented that, well, you know, that's something that we actually get a lot of. But he didn't necessarily give any good answer himself. He actually accused Bob repeatedly of not actually answering a lot of those questions. Like, doesn't really come away with any meaning, but he didn't offer up any alternative. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was more of that kind of just kind of attacking you know, Bob's perspective without really adequately saying, well, what do you have? Right, and, and that's an interesting thing to attack when you, say, say you read a book and you're giving a book review, and you say, nowhere in this book did it tell the answer to this. That, that's the kind of argument that's very hard to convince anyone of because they would have had to have read the book and, you know, because they could just be missing it or something like that. And, yeah, a lot of that just attacking Price in that sense was, it didn't make a, a, lot, a whole lot of sense to me. But, but yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of people give a lot of detailed answers about like some, just the you know some more philosophical background, like how uh, the prisoner's dilemma can uh, be behind a lot of explain, explaining how uh, the function of morality can be created in a society in, in a more kind of a natural um, you know process, and then of course the philosophical stuff that's behind um, like C.S. Lewis. Well, yeah, I wanted to read that one, and let's make this our last one so we can get into more uh, the ideas of rhetoric. Um, uh, Chatisse on the blog said, Hey, uh, C.S. Lewis, for one, says this really clear in the first chapter of his book, The Problem of Pain. Quoting freely, it's impossible to say whether it was better for God to create than to not create. So, uh, so I don't answer this underlying question and just suppose it was better to create. The question is basically the same. If being alive is the only way to participate in any level inside a naturalistic worldview, then theists just pass the question to God, whereas creation is the only way to participate. Your guest's argument just leads to global skepticism, nothing more. And that's true. That was such a good point. Yeah, because he kept throwing out uh, suicide and saying once you're an, 
a naturalist and an atheist, you have no choice but to c kill yourself. Right. Which is a very silly. And then, you know, well, this guy was an atheist and he killed himself. And this guy was an atheist and he killed himself. And then this guy ate placenta and then killed himself, you know. I think he. Was, well, I think he was talking about just, one of one of Sartre's writings, and I think he mischaracterized it just as much as he did with the Peter Singer argument. Sartre would um, he he discussed the naturalistic worldview, and uh, he talked about it in a very pessimistic way, and it was sort of a break it down, build it up type of thing. And at, at the at the very at the very low point of it was why wouldn't you just kill yourself? Sort of like. Um, so, so he wanted to start at the at the very bottom, the same way the same way Descartes started with his total skepticism, yeah, uh, and tried to build it back up. So, so he was, uh, you know, I don't know if he reads books and picks random pages, <laughs> and and then goes from there. Uh, I, I, I think I think our emailer was was pointing out actually a, a really good case about how the same problem that he claims that naturalists have, as far as I believe in the podcast interview, he said that you were borrowing concepts that you were not entitled to, that pure reason would not get you to something as simple as life uh, it was just being more valuable than death. I didn't know someone else already had that concept. It was, it was just sitting there. No, yeah, I understand. Um, and and that's, that's clever to say that Right. the reason why you seem to have a coherent worldview is because you're letting in these other things from the back door that only come from Christianity. Right, right. But the what the emailer is pointing out is that if even if this were a real problem for the naturalistic point of view, theism does not somehow solve this. He believes that somehow a transcendent source, a transcendent judge will take care of this problem. But really all that is is doing is pushing the problem one step back. See, if human subjectivity the subjectivity of human consciousness and actually being a subject and feeling pain and pleasure and if all those things are not an appropriate ground for things like value, morality, anything else, God is not going to solve that problem either because presumably God also is a conscious being. Right. Um, the, the problem would be no different. It would be, well, why? what reason does God have to choose life over to death over death what makes his evaluations legitimate it's euthyphro's or euthyphro's yeah, dilemma exactly that would have been a good thing to bring up to him if i had but one of the brilliant strategies that ravi uses is to keep on is to assume that he has the presumption which which in logic what that means is that his argument is the default argument his is the one that, in the absence of conflict, is the one that would just be assumed to be true. And mm. so that you guys have the burden of proof to prove your position. Right. Now, the, the real dirty fact of the matter is that he can't demonstrate this any more than you guys could. But actually, you know, you wouldn't even be trying to demonstrate some absolute foundation. Right. But by keeping the burden of proof on you guys, his worldview never has to be examined. Yeah. Yeah, and that was something that... it. It didn't even come to me until after the interview, and then even after while I was editing it, um, I just thought of all kinds of other stuff. But you know, it, it was tough to him ask a straightforward question. Well, what problem do you have with Christianity? And be like, oh yeah, yeah, because he's I mean, a master. I've got a list as long as my freaking arm <laughs> in my head. But you know, the, our brains are so intelligently designed to just store <laughs> memories in such a perfect little catalog. No. 
you know, you just remember stuff and then you forget stuff and it, it sucks. Well, well, and he doesn't just use rhetoric. He doesn't just use logic. He uses a lot of psychology. Did you notice oh, yeah. how he kept on using this? I, I found the way he treated you guys. I don't know if you feel the same way. I found the way he treated you guys to be very paternalistic, very condescending. Um, he was treating you like a recently deconverted young man, you right. know, like he was still the pastor of the flock and you were the prodigal son. And, and instead of treating you like an intellectual equal, it was, oh, no, 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 Danny, Danny, Danny. Yeah. You, you, you have not appreciated the true basis of Christianity, the ontological set point on the horizontal horizontal framework of reality <laughs> Danny 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 and he kept on you know he kept on using your name and the way he talked to you in a very paternalistic and I didn't, way I didn't notice that until you mentioned that to me the other day when he did that I felt good like it worked it sure. made me happy and it made, it made me, me yeah, psychologically it throws you yeah, off guard it turned off my, my my willingness to just like be like yeah that's kind of bullshit though <laughs> and be like oh he's kind of an old guy and he's just right he's know. sensitive he cares about you all yeah. these other things but Look what he's just done. Mm -hmm. You know, he's put you in an inferior position by no other way than the way that he's yeah. phrasing his responses mm -hmm. to you. Why don't we get into some specifics then? Okay. Yeah. Um, sure. you've, got, you've got a list of some stuff, and we can we're going to play some sound bites, and then we're going to kind of comment on them. And the whole mm -hmm. the whole idea of this is for us ourselves and you, the listener, to learn from our mistakes and um, just get into this very interesting mm -hmm. field of what it is. How do we talk to believers, and how do we talk to people who are their intellectual balls are are way bigger and hairier than ours? <laughs> well, it's just a, it's a matter of just knowing that. I mean, uh, Robbie was is an example of an apologist of you know really high caliber apologist. This sure. is somebody who is really good at what yeah he's what no hack. Doing. So I mean, we we were talking to some we were dealing with somebody who was just really well versed at this. So really, what it comes down it's it's, a, it's an ability for us to have. Had first-hand experience, you know, getting this you know, information, seeing, you know. Yeah, and guys, like. and to the listeners that were upset with that last episode, professional people on our end get their asses kicked by these guys all the time. Yeah. And I think this plays into what we're going to focus on because I think our side has the intellectual ammunition. Mm -hmm. Our side has the stronger arguments. But their side has top-notch rhetoric, mm -hmm. and they use psychology. I mean, think about it. How many? How is Michael Shermer? Has he ever taken a homiletics class? You know, has how many of the people that go and and argue our side, as good as they are, they've never learned to preach? Yeah, they've never. They don't have to stand before an audience every Sunday and move them emotionally compel them to change their behaviors mm -hmm. and all these other things. Ministers, even if their side is lacking rationally, have a major advantage in their rhetoric and their knowledge, their just their intuitive grasp of how to manipulate somebody psychologically. Absolutely. And so, you know, you are not the first <laughs> to be taken in mm -hmm. by Zacharias mm -hmm. and people who are professionals lose these debates all the time. And we scratch our heads and we say, how the hell did it happen? <laughs> so maybe what we could do on the show is to, instead of just take up the kind of global theological arguments that you can find in a lot of places, is actually pay closer attention to what he was doing rhetorically. Sure. 
Mm. And for the record, everyone who was critical, all right, I knew he was doing it, okay? I just bent over and took it. Uh -huh. <laughs> all right. Well, no, I'd say, you know, you guys give it a shot. Because it, it, to me, it was just like this. It, it was that same thing where, like, Armchair counter apologist. Right, right. <laughs> you know, you walk away from a fight and they're like, dude, you should have just told him to, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, I know that now. What am I going to do? Shout it across the freaking cafeteria? There needs to be some sort of rhetorical karate kid kick, you know, the one with the one. Like, <laughs> yeah. The, if I just, just, <laughs> just do the one thing. All right, what's this first clip you want to play? This is where Ravi talks about how solipsistic. Bob Price's worldview. Oh, and that was a great word, too. I did not know what it meant. Solipsist. Oh, solipsist. For the audience, um, solipsist is... I'm the most a robot. <laughs> yes, Everyone in, else is a robot, right? In the most technical sense, <laughs> solipsism is sort of the view that you are the only one that exists. Actually, believe it or not, a lot of people have had little solipsist ep episodes at some point in their life. I do this with my philosophy students all the time, and I ask them, you know, when you were a kid, did you ever have a moment, maybe, where you thought that everybody was putting on an act, like the, what is it, the Truman Show, like that right. movie with Jim Carrey, like everybody's just acting for you? Yeah. Right. Or have you ever had a moment where you thought, you know, what if I'm the only one that's really having a conscious I remember hearing All a these case study zombies. about a schizophrenic guy, you know, who just believe that it was it was yeah. kind of a friend of a friend it's interesting friend. if there may be any sort of neural underpinning to solipsism but yeah so solipsism would be the the view that you are the only one that exists now usually when somebody accuses somebody of solipsism uh sorry solipsism they mean something like they're incredibly egotistical okay so they don't always use it in the technical sense but that's what that concept means so this is one where Ravi Zacharias is commenting on the idea that we could create our own meaning for our lives. Okay. Each man formulates his own meaning. Meaning is never arrived at. You pursue this and go through life. Uh, sounds very good. I'm not sure what he's really saying there. Does he believe this today? Or did he believe this when he wrote the book? Meaning has to have an ontic point of reference. He didn't give me any. It is solipsistic, totally solipsistic. And if he is right, Sartre was right, that the only reason, the only question he couldn't answer is why he didn't commit suicide. So um, I basically ex told him, you know, hey, we can kind of create our own meaning through, you know, blah, blah, blah. And basically he says that that meaning has to be grounded in some sort of transcendent... There has to be yeah. a framework, a point of reference. He said it has to have an ontic, I'm assuming he means ontological, point of reference. Right. So ontological would mean um, he has an idea of something that actually exists, right? Meaning not as just a value judgment. Um, meaning as... Meaning must be grounded somehow in the actual fabric of reality. It has to be something that actually exists. Of course, he puts that in a transcendent God in the meaning that that God bestows upon us. Now, he thinks it has to be placed in that. But more importantly, I want to point out this comment he makes about if we believe we create our own meaning, that we are totally solipsistic. Yeah. Um, what he's doing here is he... Obviously, that's not the case. Um, people who would make meaning out of their own lives are not going to become completely selfish, selfish 
and just judge things by their own hedonistic preferences and never do anything for anybody else, uh, that sort of solipsism doesn't come out of the point of view that we were sharing. Right. What has Ravi done here? Ravi wants to see morality based in some sort of metaphysical, ontological reality. And so he's taking our argument to mean the same thing. Whereas I believe what most of us mean when we say we create our own meaning is actually an epistemological view. Now, epistemology in, in philosophy would be the questions of how we know. When we say that we create our own meaning, what we mean is we have to start right here with ourselves, with our own personal experience. Yeah. Right? This is what we're working for, from to know the world. And this is how we go about basing our beliefs on, well, what am I here for? What would my life be best directed? What aim would my life be best directed towards? What he's done is a nice little switch, okay? Uh, he has framed Robert Price's point of view, what most naturalists would mean when they say this, in a different philosophical context that works better with his point of view. He believes what we're saying is that if you create your own meaning, you're somehow creating your own meaning in a transcendent realm of ideas, something that really exists in some sort of metaphysical way. And if that's the case, yes, solipsism would follow. It would mean the world revolved around you. But nobody believes that's what they mean as far as a creative process of meaning. He's putting it within his own context, essentially. Yeah, he's not being true to what Robert Price and what Danny and you would have meant. What is the context that you were thinking of it philosophically? Right. He was inserting his own premises, sort of like the fallacy of equivocation. I don't know if it would technically fall under that term, but equivocation is where we use a word that might have two different meanings um, and then substitute them. So like revenge is best served cold is a good example. Cold can mean um, it can mean cold temperature-wise, or cold can mean very cruel, very heartless. If you were to switch out the meaning of the word to try to make some sort of strange point, that would be equivocation. Now, I don't think this falls under a textbook case of equivocation, but what he's doing is he's using meaning, capital M, the way he thinks about it, mm -hmm. in some sort of transcendent world out there. Right. And he's substituting, and he's presuming that you... Your meaning, small m, this, this is what I find to be important in life, mm -hmm. is the same thing. Right. He's, a, he's equating the two, and that's a false equi equivocation. Gotcha. He's always one step ahead of us. <laughs> no, but just, meaning when you're talking to somebody, it's very hard to notice sure. capitalization. Just know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come through in audio. Does it? Yeah, yeah. You want to move on? Yeah. This sort of view of God as, as trying to mature us and shape us. What did I just say? Mature us? Through hard times and, and through death and through sorrow and these kind of things sort of strikes more, not like a loving child to parent relationship or a man to a wife relationship, but more like a, a B.F. Skinner to his rats type of, of relationship. And, it, and it's just very cold and I guess I can kind of see that if, if parents were to treat their children the way humans are treated on earth by God or, or nature, or, uh, we would lock them up. Why would you lock him up? Let me ask you this. If Bob Pierce found out, Bob Price found out, 
that by the reading of his book, 10 people would commit suicide. Would he still write the book? <laughs> okay, this, this is classic, that. classic false analogy here. Yes. He is really, really twisting what's going on here. Now, now, first of all, the difference here is God is a sovereign being, right? Just as a father would teach a child, right? Mm -hmm. It's assuming that that instruction that the father would be giving the child is something that the father directs, right? Yeah. That's, that's how, why he gets credit for being the teacher. Instead of just using some sort of random thing that happened as a life lesson. By him equating this to Rob Price, what if he wrote a book and 10 people killed themselves? We're now looking at a situation where that would be Robert unintended consequences of Robert Price's book. Now, God right. does not have a sovereign God who's in control of all reality, does not have unintended consequences to his actions. So he here is using a nice little twist to... Make you guys stumble, what, 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 <laughs> stutter, what? Because yeah. it doesn't make sense. But, of course, we assume if he, maybe we just didn't understand what he meant, right? Yeah. Actually, I, when, he, when he said that, I honestly didn't know what to do with it. I totally just said, okay, I think you just changed the subject. Um, I didn't know what his point was. I was like, well, that's a weird place well, to a go. Little, a little bit later, I sort of went into, well, God's all-knowing. And I think I might have been going in that same direction, but I definitely didn't spell it Your out. Your very next point is very good, and it's one that... Ravi Zacharias never actually addresses. He sidesteps, he tiptoes, he switches the subject, but he never answers it. So let's listen to that. Hmm. <laughs> well, that is, uh, that is a very... I have no idea what this is. Position to be. Incidentally, Mikhail, you concede far too quickly. If you will allow a, a, respectful, um, a respectful, constructive criticism... Sure. Um, um, it's okay to be confused. It's okay to ask for clarification, but don't always feel like you need to concede. But sorry, don't. No, mean, it's okay. Don't mean to be an asshole. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I was trying not to be. We, we've problem. all made these mistakes. Anybody who takes up an argument makes a mistake like these. Should it be put into? Right, right. But I guess. Are, are, so would you be? I guess if it's God, though. He, he's got to be all powerful. It seems like he could he could be able to control these kind of things, but it's it's not just the fact that some people die or suffer. It's it's the especially in the Christian view the sort of a completely over overly dramatic punishments for sins that don't really cause all that much harm. Now let me just pause this to make a make a statement here, and that is let's let's be absolutely clear about the point that you were making, Danny, and that is. The punishments of hell, the things that God does, far exceed far any anything we could do. Yes, the the punishment does not fit the crime. It's the severity of the punishment that's the issue, not the fact that humans suffer. Now, what does Ravi do? I think Bob himself implicitly answers that, although he doesn't do this in this. He did it in his debate with uh, uh, Rankin at uh, Gordon. He says you can't ask God to do that, which is mutually contradictory. You can't ask God to do that, which is mutually exclusive. Gentlemen, if love is a supreme ethic, which I hope you and I would agree on, because yeah. I think from reading what you've said, Danny, it is there, love has to have volition to it. Love, If love is constrained and love is uh, engineered and love is programmatically designed in your life and mine, Danny, what becomes of that? It's not love anymore. It's conformity. And 
Bam! What are we talking about now? We're talking about the problem of evil. You oh. were not talking about the problem of evil in that sense, right? Right. You were not talking about whether or not human beings had free will and could choose to love God and what that means and, uh, and would they choose to suffer. Yeah. You were talking about the suffering, the punishment for their sins and the severity of it. Now, he mm-hmm. goes on for the next 20 minutes doing this runaround. And you guys, you know, were actually good at trying to... I don't know if you knew exactly what he was doing at the time, but it was clear that as soon as he got done with his thing, you realized that the you real the question, question hadn't been answered. And, that and you tried him. to get him back there, and he keeps yeah. on switching but the subject. What's funny is that I, I knew he... I, I didn't... I mean, I know he was he did that, and I mean, maybe at the time I wasn't like being completely aware of it, or I was just... If I did, I was like, okay, let's just keep going. But I know that he, and he did that before. I heard we we, followed, we did we had some material. Uh, his we listened um, to some yeah. background material. He's the master of the red herring. Yeah, he will get people off on all sorts of rabbit trails. And you know, one one other class of a red a red herring argument is it actually is, it has an interesting history. The name red herring is what you would do is you would throw a fish out to throw off the scent of. Uh, um, of a fox during when during fox hunts, so mm-hmm. so the fox hunters would throw off the scent of the of the fox mm-hmm. for their dogs. So the idea of a red herring argument is getting you on a rabbit trail, getting you off the real subject of the matter. Right. Now a certain class of red herring, there's all sorts of red herring arguments, but a certain class would be appeals to emotion, uh, appeals to guilt, appeals to fear, and if uh, anybody wants to go back and listen to the debate with Ravi, you'll notice the next 20 minutes that follow that comment, that's what he does over and over again. You ask a legitimate question, hey, Ravi, why would uh, God punish somebody for something small like lying? You didn't use that one, but that would be a type case. And he goes, Danny, let me tell you. Uh, I talked to a man in the most atheistic country in the world and he cried to me and he said, Why? We've been trying it man's way. Why don't we try it God's way? And he said that, Danny, because people were suffering. Suffering under... Well, what what is that? Is this addressing the actual logical <laughs> mm-hmm. point? Of course, everybody cares about the suffering children of the world, right? Oh, great. You brought a tear to my eye. Great. But what he's done is he sidestepped the issue... But he's claiming the moral ground at the same time right. by making an emotional appeal. And that was what was funny about this thing I was listening to where he addressed that question. Because I really wanted to ask that question because I listened to him address it before. Mm-hmm. And when I was listening to him, what he did is he got to it and described, okay, this is the question. is about does God control our, our, our suffering? Is he doing it for that purpose? And what he, and what he did is he went to the, some Bible verse that when a blind man walked up to Jesus and said, "Why does you know God make me blind?" You know, and and, and tries to ask for if God was behind it, and all Jesus said was, um, "I am here to try and serve as many people as possible." That's what he said, and then he completely just said that it is a question. All he did is say that the question is a very difficult one. It is one that we were very difficult. It's hard to actually get to, but that if you pursue it through the route of God, you will find it. He didn't answer the question. He didn't even say how, you know, Jesus or you know Christianity answered that question. He never did. He just said that it's hard, it's difficult, and he he, he essentially did what Jesus did and sidestepped the issue completely. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has a very presuppositionalist. 
apologetic where basically he just, like you said, he assumes that Christianity is true because he's going to presume that and then compare mm-hmm. any other worldview. And if it differs from yeah. that mm-hmm. or if there's some mm-hmm. internal contradiction, then it That's, can immediately be thrown out, which is not true. You find an anomaly, it doesn't mean you throw a theory out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very good point. And that would make sense to us because that's how we deal with things empirically. That's how we yeah. draft our theories. We, we hold our ideas provisionally. That means until we find some sort of evidence that would make us change them. And we adapt. We, we search for equilibrium with all the information we know about the world. And then we base our moral point of view. As you talked about when you talked about, I think you falsely called it an emerging property. But it was clear from the other things that you said that's exactly what you meant, is that in some sense, moral ethics will evolve that way as we come to know more about the world, right. as we come to know more about what creates uh, suffering and what creates and, happiness. And they'll say, well, was that true yesterday? And to, you know, what about today? And they'll kind of right. try to throw that out there. Well, Again, he's sticking you back in tomorrow. his worldview. And right. you bringing up the fact that he's very presuppositionalist was a very good observation. Um, because you'll notice several times during the debate, what does Ravi say? Within the Christian worldview, it is totally coherent. In other words, he doesn't feel like he has to prove anything that he's saying. He wants to win just through the the coherency. He wants to say... confusing us and presenting his... Now, is that a fair standard? Because, first of all, the idea that his worldview is somehow coherent is mm-hmm. one of the most laughable things that I've and ever I, heard. I, I wanted to but, call him out on it, but then at the same time, I was like, okay, if I do that, it's going to just be like, uh, Yeah, but second of all, if you're starting from an epistemology that's much more humble, that is, our approach to truth is that we don't think we know everything, that we're not looking for something that's absolutely true. We're trying to learn along yeah. the way through a process then it's completely ridiculous to say that, okay, if some part of the puzzle doesn't fit for you guys, therefore it's totally wrong. And if my puzzle fits nice and tightly together, therefore it's the better option. Uh, is it, It's presupposing presuppositionalism. It's presupposing, <laughs> uh, you know... It's pretty vicious that to that's, that's the way, you know, that's the way to determine truth. And you know what? You That's not... A common ground that we would agree on viewpoint wise. Uh, Ravi has a few things to say about coherency and its importance to philosophy and I actually this is one of the statements he made uh, during his debate with you guys that I totally agree with. Let's listen to it. But be very careful with what you just said in your opening statement just because it's coherent doesn't mean it's true but if it is incoherent we immediately get the lights flashing. That's the point. And that's why your opening question was to raise, is there an incoherence between an all-loving God and what we see? That's the reason you raised it. He's got a great point here. First of all, he sidestepped your very good point, too, that coherence is not all that matters to a system. You know, the other thing that you need is correspondence to reality. You need a worldview to actually not just be internally consistent. Actually, that's pretty easy. We could generate about an, in, an infinite number of worldviews yeah, that would be internally monsters. consistent. Right. Right. Um, what matters is, does it correspond to reality as well? Now, he makes a good point. Incidentally, I think this point is fatal to a lot of Christian arguments, especially ones that concern morality. And Ravi's point is, yeah, coherence isn't enough for truth, but any sort of incoherent worldview 
he says, should raise a, where, a red flag. An incoherent worldview is not one that we should invest too much time in. So we may not know, especially as naturalists, especially when it comes to something as sticky as morality, what absolutely would be true morally. But that doesn't mean we're complete relativists or complete um, egoists, as Ravi would imply. Why? Because we can judge which moral points of view are incoherent. We have plenty of examples of moral worldviews that are not rationally coherent. They are not viable options for us. So we can say what isn't a good option, even if we can't say with final certainty what is. Right. Now, is the Christian worldview, moral worldview, coherent? This is an issue he never lets be addressed. And it's kind of funny because I have a personal story that directly ties to Ravi Zacharias here. About a year ago, I had an opportunity to have breakfast with an apologist, a Christian apologist named Stuart McAllister. Stuart McAllister works for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He goes around training people during apologetic seminars. Uh, he goes around the country and around the world training churches in apologetics. He's pretty much being groomed as Ravi Zacharias's successor. Now, during this breakfast, we were talking about the same issues here, and I asked Stuart a very important question. I said, let's look at the standard we have in the Bible of morality, you know, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the laws of Israel. Now, if you're one of those hyper-dispensationalists that you used to hate so much, right. uh, Danny, uh, then you might say, then the laws of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, and these other things that we would find in the New Testament. Right. Um, and let's see, how does God measure up to that standard? And everybody knows God is jealous. God has done his fair share of killing. Uh, God has deceived. Not only does it flat out say in places that he deceives somebody, but he will send a spirit of deception amongst people so that they can't even repent and turn right, to him. Right, like uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and King Saul. There's sure. always references to God putting an evil spirit into him. Sure. Now... Basically, you could go through many of these laws and find out that God violates every one. Now, the very important thing that I said to Stuart, and this, this was an intentional um, logical point, was that I didn't try to argue from that that God was somehow immoral. All that I was trying to point out to Stuart McAllister was that if God has a moral standard, whatever it means for God to be righteous or holy, the criteria for that is not the same criteria we follow. So the Ten Commandments and obedience to them can't be the standard, God's moral standard. He has some other moral standard. If he's holy and he's righteous, there's some other moral standard that he follows. And I asked him, well, what is that standard? Because it must be a difference in kind, not a difference in degree. That's an important point to make. A difference in degree would be that God follows the same rules we do. He just follows them perfectly, right? He's totally righteous. Never murders, never lies, never steals, nothing. Well, we know that's not true. If his morality is different in kind, it means he follows a totally different moral standard altogether. Where is that standard published in the Bible? Where do we find a list of things that God can and cannot do? Stuart thought I was being a sophist here. He thought I was playing philosophical tricks and everything and, and tried to sidestep the question. And I brought him back into the conversation by... Um, sort of an emotional appeal, like I accused Ravi of making. I said, I said, Stuart, when you pray, 
in your church, when you worship your God and you call him holy, this isn't like not being able to understand God's omnipotence here. This is central. Do you know what you mean? Is it coherent or you're just blabbering nonsense when you praise God as being holy? I can tell you one way that you might be able to show me, Stuart, that you have an idea in your mind of what you mean when you say God is holy, and that is if you could give me one moral action that God could perform that would make him unrighteous, what deed could God possibly commit that would disqualify him from being holy? Yeah. And the truth is you can't find one. Is it genocide? No, genocide's permissible. Is it murder, deception? What could you find? What conceivable action is there that God could not permit could not do and not be holy? Stuart actually had Stuart McAllister actually had the integrity to stare across the table at me and say, "You know what? I don't have an answer to that question." And I pressed him on it. I said, "You do realize how that's important, right? Because when you're praising God, you should have an idea of what that means, that he's holy. He said, yes, I do recognize that that's important. And he did something that I think is totally legitimate in any sort of debate like this. He said, you know, I wasn't prepared for that argument. I want to talk to other people. I want to see what they have to say. He didn't concede right there at that moment, which is fine. Nobody does. Is that Mikhail? Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve that. But you know what? You've yeah. paid off your karma. Yeah. Um, but I bet you if Stuart McAllister didn't, I would bet you Ravi Zacharias doesn't either. And if there is no answer to that one, that means to say God is holy is a completely unintelligible thing. You might as well say that God is wooey-dooey, God is mabugabit. That word holiness has no referent in any sort of reasons that you can find. That means the total moral foundations for Christian for the Christian worldview is vacuous. It's incoherent. It's meaningless. Ravi Zacharias is banking on the idea that the existence, he even says it during his debate with you, there has to be a judge. But this judge, we have no reason to say he's a good judge. We don't even know what good is for this judge. In order for him to actually make good on his claim of coherence, that judge that he's speaking of God has to have some kind of a has to be able to demonstrate some kind of a moral standard. It has to. We have to know. We have to. He's for exist. For for example, if God, this is the youth rose dilemma that you yeah. brought up before. If God um, is completely arbitrary, if, if if just whatever he says goes and is right, that's not morality. That's arbitrary. That's that's amorality, right? Yeah. That's an amoral God. He's just doing whatever he's doing. It's more like might makes right. Right. Now, if God isn't that way, if he knows what is right and makes pronouncements based on his knowledge of moral truths, that means that moral truths are somehow discoverable outside of his own dictates. And what someone like William Lane Craig would say to that, and I don't think it's an adequate response. I don't even know what it means. Yeah, is to say that God himself is the good. Right. Not that he gets it from somewhere else, but he is the good. And my friend Zach Moore, when he was he got to ask questions at one of uh, Bill Craig's talks, he said, why is God good? 
Yeah. And it, it basically good because, point. It gets because, you right to the right, to right what to Bill the Craig same did in, a, in by twisting around his words is move the problem back a step. Mm-hmm. And Zach just pushed it right back up. Now what? And not and to mention can, that's what we would call a post hoc hypothesis. That was not yes. something he originally came up with. They created that intentionally to avoid a philosophical conflict. Um, when you if you if we're gonna do that, we could do that for an infinity. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a gra- dragon in my garage. Is the traditional answer. Uh, well, why can't I see him? Because he's invisible. Well, what if we throw some paint on him? Well, the thing about him is he doesn't really... He has mass, but not volume. Mm. He doesn't take up space. You know, it's a fifth dimensional thing. You could do post hoc hypotheses to the end of the world, oh, yeah. and that's the sort of thing that William Lane Craig and others will do. Uh, but I, I just wanted to uh, throw that in as, as, as a final touch. If he's assuming that his worldview is coherent, and he's trying to point out incoherencies in his... Um, the problem is uh, us as naturalists looking for a foundation for our morality, no matter what problems we may face, he shares those same problems. And in fact, his situation is far more grim. Ravi, you are borrowing from the atheistic worldview mm-hmm. to build your Christian morality. Oh, <laughs> and, by, and by the way, this time the smackdown was on you. <laughs> right, yeah. Guys, thanks so much. Uh, this has been an incredible, good good way to follow up the show. Well, you have, you have been an incredible host to me and my lawyer while we were here in uh, in Boulder. And so thank you so much for hey. sharing your friendship and your beer and everything right, else. Right. You that's, guys are great. That's how I roll. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Oh, wait, wait. Can I get a plug-in for my show? Oh, absolutely. I was just going to say that. Um, the Reasonable Doubts Podcast. Where can our listeners find that? Yeah, go to doubtcast.org or uh, find us on iTunes, Reasonable Doubts Podcast. We do, uh, we mostly focus on counter-apologetics, addressing the apologists. Uh, and uh, the other key focus we have is psychology of religion. One of our co-hosts is a uh, social psychologist who spends his time studying religion. And we, I think we bring some of the information out there first before anybody else does and we're really proud of that so check it out doubtcast.org yeah i was really glad to meet you guys and i'll definitely be hitting you uh you up for resources on all our next um you know interviews and podcasts and things like that yeah if you're ever doing a rematch uh please give me a call i'd love to be a part of it oh yeah that'd be phenomenal yeah well maybe hopefully Ravi will uh still talk about but, uh, <laughs> yeah aj Appreciate the uh, sitting in. You gave a few little good words of uh, well, thank you for having us. Yeah. Well, you know, he was in the back making sure we didn't say.